Greetings, Great Connections listeners. Apologies for the hiatus. As some of you may have known, I actually just recently got married and was on my honeymoon. And then unfortunately, right after that, I got sick. So apologies for the last few weeks of silence, but I've got a really great episode for you today. And we've actually recorded a couple more. So the next few weeks are going to be some really great episodes. I'm really excited for those. Our guest today is Tu Lee with Sino Auto Insights. I originally came across Tu on John McElroy, who was on an earlier episode of the podcast, on his program, which is AutoLine After Hours. And Tu really brings a really fascinating and deep knowledge base of how the Chinese auto market is impacting autos globally, along with not just the electrification of the space, but especially around autonomy. His background is really fascinating because he actually was born in Detroit, grew up in America, and then went to Silicon Valley and worked for Apple and some startups. So he kind of got the foundational background of the kind of big three Detroit automotive background, and then was exposed to everything kind of going in Silicon Valley and the really disruption that that's led to, I think, in a lot of industries, but especially that was kind of led by Tesla and a lot of the other startups into automotive. And this is really accelerated under what's happening with a lot of these Chinese automotive companies. And he actually ended up living in China for quite a few years and was exposed to it directly and saw just how quickly these Chinese companies we're looking to make the change and then become leaders in the space. And now they're going into European markets and looking to even start coming to North America. Our kind of conversation goes all over these topics. And it's a really fascinating one. And one I've been really excited to have with them for quite a while. So we talk about really the current state of the industry, the impact of China, and then how this is going into electrification as well as into the autonomous driving space. If you're not already subscribed, I highly recommend following his news, uh, I believe it's weekly newsletter, and it's always a really detailed breakdown of what's happening in the industry and kind of taking a lot of these events that you might hear about, especially when it comes to autonomy or the general automotive markets and what that has with these kinds of impacts tied to electrification, tied to the greater market around autonomy, and especially the Chinese kind of component versus what we're seeing here, maybe in more media in the US about how automotive make, uh, automakers are approaching it here. This, you get kind of the full spectrum approach. I also recommend checking out his uh, live podcast, which is every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern on actually Twitter, I guess now X spaces that he hosts but is then recorded and it is the China and more EVs podcast. So you can also check them out there, but uh, I'm really excited for this episode to be sharing with you today. So enjoy. Chase, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name is Tuli, as you'd mentioned, grew up in Detroit or just outside of Detroit. Uh, for uh, NFL fans, I grew up about a mile away from the Pontiac Silverdome, which no longer exists. Uh, my first job out of undergrad was at General Motors, ironically, at the factory that is now building the Chevy Bolt, and uh, did, did the automotive sector for a few years, and when I was 18 years old, 19 years old at Michigan State, I thought the end-all, be-all was being a manager at GM or Ford, and so um, little did I know there was a lot more out in the world, uh, and so after about three years, moved to, uh, to Pittsburgh uh, to go to grad school, and then uh, graduated from business school and moved out to Silicon Valley, where I worked about six and a half, seven years, and uh, met a girl in San Francisco, and uh, she had transferred over to Beijing. And so I pursued her and chased her over to Beijing um, in around, in or around 2008, 2009. And so this was when the economy wasn't well. GM, Chrysler, Daimler Chrysler at that time, or FCA was uh, going bankrupt. And my entire family was still in Michigan, wondering why I would quit a high paying job in Silicon Valley and move to a country where I didn't speak the language and didn't have a job. And fast forward 13 years later, um, I moved back about a year ago. And um, in between that time in China, I'd worked at Ford and uh, worked at a couple of Chinese uh, e-commerce startups and started a consultancy, Sino Auto Insights, about seven years ago in Beijing. I, uh, my background is because, or the reason that I started it is because I saw this disconnect between traditional 
automotive guys and tech guys. They were speaking completely different languages. And I kind of anticipated what we're seeing today, six or seven years ago. And so, um, yeah, and in Santa Auto Insights, we help uh, governmental agencies, we help small mobility companies, we help EV companies. Uh, we've done all kinds of projects for, for the market research, traditional market research. We've helped raise capital for some smaller companies. Um, and we've done some marketing, some strategic communications projects. Um, and I moved back a year ago to, to open an office in Detroit because I wanted to be a part of kind of the evolution and adoption of EVs here. And as we're seeing right now, Chase, as you know, it's getting a bit lumpy, but that creates opportunities for smaller companies as the larger companies are really trying to still define who they are in the EV world. So, yeah, and I, I think that's what's so fascinating about your perspective on this, because it is kind of the nexus of disruption right now in the automotive space. You have a lot of the uh, Chinese auto, uh, auto manufacturers, that I think, had been disregarded. And there were quite a few that came up. And obviously, like anything, a lot kind of fell by the wayside. But now there's still a large number that are being successful. And I think it is this kind of completely different approach that is really a big struggle for the traditional auto OEMs between not just kind of the uh, mindset of what the consumer and what a vehicle should be, but then you also have the challenges around um, essentially figuring out how to make these electric vehicles. They've always made cars, so this should be easy. And I think a lot of like the Teslas of the world and the uh, startups in China were kind of being laughed at like, oh yeah, we're the big auto OEMs. We know how to do this. When we actually have to start making EVs, we'll have no problem. And I think we're starting to really have any doubt removed. <laughs> that just isn't the case. And I, I would kind of like you to kind of... Uh, maybe flesh that out a little bit more. And given your experience, I'd, I'd love to hear your take. And I, this is why I think I find you so interesting to hear or listen to is just how wrong the mindset is and what this gap is that the uh, domestic auto OEMs have in this new revolution. So a lot to unpack there, but let me start <laughs> by saying yeah. that having manufacturing excellence or manufacturing deep manufacturing experience uh, for ICEs doesn't for uh, doesn't um, project into being an expert in building electric vehicles. Uh, case in point, GM is hand building battery cells for their Ultium uh, platform. And Lucid, they've been what, five, six, seven year old company now, and they can barely build 9,000 cars a year. Rivian uh, has gone through manufacturing hell. And so um, I had the fortune or misfortune, however you want to say it, of being in China during COVID. And so uh, real quick story, it was December, January of 2020. And uh, we had come back to the United States to visit family in Michigan. And what I thought was going to be a three-week trip with my entire family, ended up being three and a half months. And wow. the consultancy was doing great. And then it went to zero. And my wife and I, because home was Beijing. So my wife and I thought, okay, we're safe in the United States. We'll enroll the kids in school. And then when it's safe to come back, we'll do that. Well, next thing you know, the US starts getting pretty bad in February, March. And so we try to get back to China. And uh, luckily, we were able to get a one-way ticket. And uh, the day we got back to Beijing, uh, they closed the border on the day after. So March 26, 27. So we were there for around two and a half years without leaving. But during that time, you saw this massive move by the Chinese, uh, Chinese consumers into electric vehicles. And so... But that was a long time coming because NEO was established in 2014, Xpeng, Liado. Those three companies are U.S. publicly traded companies. And uh, I live right next door to the mall in Beijing where Tesla opened its first retail store. 
I literally lived about a hundred yards from Parkview Green. And so the first day it opened, of course, me being the, the card nerd that I am, I had to go down and check it out. And it was really cool. Uh, only a Model S and it was in the, in the showroom. And again, this was 2014. So uh, early adopters, you started seeing, you know, Model S's, but, but no, no, no huge numbers. But during COVID, that's when critical mass hit. And coincidentally, in December of 2019, it also uh, is when the first locally made Tesla Model 3 rolls off the line in Shanghai. And so even though there had been significant focus on and, and long-term focus starting in 2009 from the Chinese government to build out EVs, build out the battery sector in China, it still took Tesla building locally to really be a catalyst to get that EV adoption up. And what we saw was a million and a half units in 2019, uh, three and a half million units in 2020, no, uh, a million and a half in 2020, three and a half in 2021, and six and a half last year. This year in China, we'll get to probably around eight, nine million units uh, with a bunch of them being exported. So last year, just so you you probably know this, but last year, the United States sold 800,000 um, EVs with, I want to say, 60% of those being Teslas. So right. we are far, far, we're farther, we're, we're farther behind than Europe is on EV adoption, which is a shame. So for sure. And I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, I'd love to hear your perspective. You were talking about how it was during COVID that the Chinese uh, consumer really started buying more EVs. And why do you think that is? Because I know uh, traditionally China was doing a lot as a government to incentivize um, between the special license plates and the uh, I believe financial incentives to really get people into EVs. And we're starting to see, obviously that's kind of with the IRA and a couple of things that's starting to happen here in the U S with incentives. I still don't think to the same level. I don't know if you could do it to the same level politically for sure. Uh, especially with kind of the license plate side of stuff, but yeah, I, I would love to kind of hear more as to what, um, we've seen a lot of pretty consistent growth in Europe. What do you think it was about the lockdowns and kind of that COVID time in China that really caused it to ramp up? And what do you, is there anything that the U.S. market can learn from that to maybe help the adoption here? The biggest or one of the biggest misconceptions that I still think Western people have about China is that it's a copycat uh, society or copycat world from business standpoint. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We have three core beliefs at Sino Auto Insights. And whenever I do an introduction of the management consultancy, uh, I talk about these three core beliefs. All companies are becoming software companies. Innovation is now moving east to west. You can look at TikTok. You can look at DJI as two easy examples of that. Okay. And then the third is you're not moving fast enough. And that's more or less tongue in cheek. But if you think about it, even traditional manufacturing companies, bricks and mortar companies, they all have an online presence. They're all selling online. So that's what I mean by all companies are becoming software companies. So if you don't have a competency in software development, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And in China, the economy has effectively uh, been only growing for about 40 years. But that means that the the early arrivers, the GMs and the Volkswagens who arrived in the late 90s uh, for Volkswagen arrived in, in the 80s, um, they feasted uh, off the China market. You know, uh, we hear these things about how they were forced to do JVs with the Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises. They weren't forced to do anything. They entered willfully. And if you think about the number of vehicles they sold in China, Volkswagen wouldn't be who they are today. GM wouldn't be who they are today. Toyota wouldn't be who they are today without the China market. And so I wouldn't feel too bad for the foreign legacies when it comes to the hardships they had to deal with when, with their dominance in the China market for the last 35 years. Now, 
with regards to the, the economy only really being developed over the last 40 years, that means that most people didn't have phone, analog phones in their house. Most people didn't have those things. And then there's a, a generational divide where whereas uh, people born after 1990 are considered digital natives. And so they had a mobile phone in their hand. They had uh, internet on their on their mobile phone and everything. They had e-commerce. And so, and a lot of those services were brought to them by Chinese brands. So the trust factor on the domestic brands was high. Whereas their parents, they would always want to buy a Volkswagen. They would never buy a BYD. They would never buy, uh, uh, if, if they could afford a foreign brand, they would likely buy it. And so um, one of the reasons that I look back at, um, besides Tesla being that catalyst, is also the level of competition. It goes back to what I said earlier about how uh, I think the Western audiences still think, uh, some of them still think China's a big copycat. The level of competition, uh, there were hundreds of EV brands that sprouted up over an 18, 24, 36-month period. And where these Chinese brands live is in the mass market. So below 300,000 RMB or about 45,000 US dollars. And so what Chinese consumers demand is a safe vehicle and a connected vehicle. Now, the legacies, again, they're not very good at software development, but guess what? The main consumer that's buying those EVs is those digital natives that are used to having digital features on their phone in every in every aspect of their life, connected home, smart home. And so if you're not able to provide that in your vehicle, you're you're not gonna sell that 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 EV or that ICE. And that's what we're seeing happening. Um, there was uh, let's just say that the the foreign legacies in China were very surprised at how quickly EV adoption ramped and they were caught flat-footed. And then as they tried to pull products in, they weren't able to do the software right. Yeah. So so it, it does sound like in your, because uh, I, I think one of the things, especially here in the US right now, we're saying, well, EVs are starting to slow down. No one really wants them. It's because of government incentive. And there, there might be some like truth to that. I, I think more it's just interest rates and slowing economy and all that. But are you, from what I'm hearing, it sounds more like for all the stuff the Chinese government was doing, and there was a lot that they did as far as like uh, the manufacturing infrastructure to make EVs um, an easy thing to live with in their country. It sounds like to me, the, uh, what you're saying is it wasn't so much the incentives to the consumer that the government was pushing that made EVs popular. It was the fact that there were now products that the consumer wanted to buy that kind of may have been um, uh, catalyzed, as you said, by the Tesla factory there in Shanghai. But really, it's more the now that there's products that the uh, digital first uh, buyers kind of resonate with and can afford, that's really what's causing this large catalyst versus kind of government incentives or any government mandates pushing it. What is that a fair take or do you think it is a more of a mixture of both that's led to the growth? It's it's definitely a mixture of both because um, what we're seeing is uh, successful adoption of electric vehicles starts with subsidizing the purchase and the, the build out of charging infrastructure yeah. and uh, to create that awareness. Um, It'll never happen in any other country, but the the level of competition in such a short period of time is is what really drove prices down and yeah. made them affordable and on on par uh, or in parity with a Volkswagen Jetta or Volkswagen Passat or a Buick uh, that would used to be popular five years ago in China, and so um, and again. These, this is this should be unsettling for Western automakers. Um, BYD will be the number one brand in China, dethroning Volkswagen. 
BYD only Which sells hybrids and battery electric vehicles. Okay. And collectively, this will be the first year in 35, 40 years that the Chinese brands will outsell the foreign brands in China. So there's a lot to kind of analyze if you're Europe or the United States, but the unfortunate thing that's happening to the United States is that we can't build affordable EVs, number one. Number two, there's only a handful of notable EV startups. Uh, two, basically, two basically, Lucid and Rivian, because I can't think of too many others that actually were VinFast, but they're, they're a Vietnamese company, not an American company. And so uh, that level of competition is not there either to drive down those prices. And what we're seeing is, I, I, I think it's a lack of product, high interest rates in, in, in an economy that's trying to figure its way out. But I do believe the Inflation Reduction Act was the right thing to do. And um, Stellantis, Ford, GM, they've announced 35, 40, $50 billion dollars worth of investment to convert and move over uh, their products to electric or clean energy. So um, it's not an if, it's a when, and, and it'll be lumpy up until there are more products because we're dealing with the lack of charging infrastructure that you had mentioned earlier, but again, the lack of products. And if Tesla continues to reduce price on, on their products, um, it could be lights out for a few brands that you and I uh, have grown up with historically in the United States, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny you say that because there's, uh, I, I'm kind of indifferent, but I do know there's a lot of people, uh, especially if you go on Twitter or any of the social medias that love to kind of hate on Tesla or Elon Musk. And now I'm seeing them even say like, you know what? I don't like Elon. I don't like Tesla. But that Model 3 and Model Y are priced at such a price point. I don't know why you wouldn't get it, which is kind of the first time I've seen that um, as far as I can remember, and really only within the last couple months. And do you think that that is, I guess a question for you would then be with what you just said, I think this will be kind of the last thing about like looking back, but um, with where the Chinese market is and how quickly the competition has driven down their price, do you think that it will be the... I guess it's more forward-looking, actually. Do you think it'll be the Chinese come into the U.S. market at the low end, like the Hondas, the Japanese makers, and kind of like the Hyundai's and Kia's are net had? Or do you think it will be the domestic auto OEMs are able to make these products at that low point or get the price down? Which one do you think will happen first? The Chinese come in with the low-priced vehicles, or do you think the domestic auto OEMs will be able to get their products and pricing together to really start serving the sub 45,000 market? I think we need to really peel a few layers of the onion back because yeah. the GMs and Ford can build, you know, lesser expensive vehicles. They just won't be profitable. Right. Okay. And part of that reason is because they need to continue to build petrol engine vehicles to fund their EV future. And a Tesla and these Chinese EV startups, they don't need to do that, okay? And then on top of that, because specifically Tesla, they can build a twenty-five dollars or $28,000 car profitably, okay? And that's not going to be the case for Ford GM for quite some time because uh, Jim Farley famously said earlier this year, uh, he was quoted in a Financial Times article that it said and said that it takes about 30% less labor to build an electric right. vehicle. And so if they start building, um, if the majority of their vehicles that they produce are electric, but they're, the number of employees that are uh, still building them is about the same, that is a lot of overhead and fixed costs that is attached to every single uh, US-made vehicle or UAW uh, made vehicle. And it creates a huge, huge disadvantage. And the, th the thing that should be one of the, one of the scariest things for a Mary Barr or a Jim Farley or, or a Carlos Tavares um, for the U.S. market specifically should be 
Tesla comes out with a $25,000 Model 2 because we can hate personalities, we cannot like brands, but ultimately price is going to decide most consumers, um, or let's just say that price is going to dictate consumers' decisions on what to buy for the most part, okay? Because first of all, Tesla superchargers are ubiquitous for the most part in the United States, whereas Electrify America, ChargePoint, EVgo, they're not. And um, the NACS plug being now the de facto universal plug for the United States really um, makes it, so so that should help EV adoption right. overall. But it creates an even bigger advantage for Tesla because now they get licensing revenue from that and they get incremental revenue for non-Tesla vehicles charging at Tesla supercharging stations. And the third thing is uh, that they get government money to build more superchargers. Whereas if they wouldn't have opened it up to non-Tesla vehicles, they wouldn't have got that uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act. So, Yeah, that, that's a good point. I think that actually, um, there's actually two points to that, especially around superchargers. On an earlier episode this season, we had uh, Lauren McDonald uh, come on from EV Adoption. And he talks about how Tesla uh, will take government money where they get it, but their default is move fast. And if government money either has too many strings or uh, takes too long, they'll just drop it all together and just build the supercharger and be done with it and go on the next one. Whereas the EAs and a lot of these other uh, public charging infrastructure just can't do that or they're and they kind of purposely slow down to try and get more government money through the nevi and these other programs so that their installations are uh have a it just makes the margins and the the profitability better for them but it's still not as strong and this i think goes back to one of those kind of three principles you're talking about about moving fast and i was always a fan of the uh, north american charging standard uh, charger, I just never thought it was ever going to happen. I was like, yeah, that's, that'd be the ideal, but I doubt it. And to see all of the domestic auto OEMs pretty much flip around and give that up only gives more ability for Tesla to have more money to move faster. And I think that that is something I'm still kind of surprised that they gave up. Um, it doesn't surprise me from like the consumer experience and what it needs to do if you actually want to sell EVs. And that's the main uh, concern, but being able to focus on getting uh, more superchargers in the ground and just getting more revenue from that in general, once again, it, it to me is just kind of a flywheel thing where it only makes other stuff then move faster. They can take that revenue and put it other places. And it is just really interesting to me that with where that investment has been in public charging and with how Tesla's approaching it, that uh, I, I think it's really putting the auto, OE, I, not, not that I ever thought that they would do their own standard or do anything like that, but um, it to me just puts them almost further behind where Tesla is. And it just gives, like you're saying, this other revenue to them to accelerate and continue to move faster. Because uh, I, I think I look at Tesla in some of the ways like, oh yeah, they used to move really fast. And, and it was just because they were a small company and they had no products. So when they came out with an update to a product or more products, it was like, wow, they are moving quickly. Um, but now it's really, it just seems to be there is Tesla and then there's the Chinese market. And then you have uh, the domestic auto OEMs who, as you were saying, they're really, their focus, understandably, good or bad has been kind of short-term focused around and Wall Street's really demanded of them is to focus on the profitable high-end trucks and SUVs. And that is an area where I think they'll probably continue to be successful and help them but I just don't know, I'm still, and I guess this kind of goes back to the other question, like, I don't know which one can do it faster. Can they take the revenue and being a very SUV truck focused market that the US is, make electric trucks popular faster than the Chinese market can come in and flood the market with cheap Chinese EVs, and then maybe even start making uh, EV trucks by these Chinese companies. So I believe here, here, here's kind of my theory. Um, the, 
Legacy automakers are some of the best marketing companies in the world because for the last hundred or so years, they've convinced us to spend 50, 60, 70, 80, 90,000 US dollars <laughs> on their product that we use 5% of the time. Right. And so the, the they need to flip the script because they've created this notion of you know, big, large trucks and SUVs equals freedom, right? Freedom to explore, freedom to drive anywhere you want. Now they have this conundrum because a 90,000 US dollar F-150 Lightning or a $60,000 F-150 uh, Lightning, I think they start at 57 and change now. Somebody so let's has. say 60 grand. That thing probably gets about 250 miles of range. Okay. And in cold weather, probably less. And so they're going to need to sell a lot of smaller SUVs and crossovers in order to be competitive at all. Because let's not forget their manufacturing footprints, right? They have millions of units of capacity that right. need uh, products. And if they can only build you eighty thousand dollar F one fifty Lightnings, there's a lot of those factories that are going to be end up end up being idled, okay? And and this is where, and I don't, you know, unless you want to talk about it, but this is where, for the foreseeable future through twenty thirty, the U S legacies and the foreign legacies that build in the U S will need Chinese batteries to get anywhere close to the 48,000 US dollars that's currently the average price of a US car that was sold last year. <laughs> um, and remember, 48,000 on interest rates that were next to nothing in 2022. $48,000, uh, a, a $50,000 loan with six or 7% interest rate is much, much higher on a monthly payment. This time of year, than it was last year. And exactly. so these are the types of challenges that the US legacies have. And they need to be careful because if, so the Inflation Reduction Act really allowed, I believe the US legacies to kick the can down the road by a few years. China EV Inc. is entering, full yeah. stop. Um, and let me just really quickly say this, Chase. As someone who worked in a couple different factories for an extended period of time, the U.S. factories, visited hundreds, and grew up here, so in the in in Detroit, so I know what an automotive engineer is thinking when they get into a vehicle: fit, form, and function. You know, panel gaps, little squeaks and rattles. And I've driven enough of these Chinese cars now that they should be really, 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 really worried. Uh, yeah, that, the, it, the, the, the U.S. automakers, anyways. Right, and it's funny you say that because that's a pretty consistent theme I've heard over the past year, too. Uh, I, I unfortunately haven't had a chance to drive a lot of these, but everyone I've talked to that's kind of gone behind one, they've been pretty impressed with just uh, if they've driven them before or maybe a couple of years ago, how quickly the quality in the interiors have removed any sorts of... Um, I guess you could call it quality control issues, but those kinds of squeaks and rattles and where they are now today. Yeah. It just is uh, no longer the OE, uh, the domestic auto OEM advantage that I think a lot of people think it was. So one and of the things I'm, Oh, go for it. The, the other thing too, Chase, is that the definition of premium and luxury is changing too. For sure. For sure. Uh, where, the 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 Western consumer, and and this is the 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 Chinese consumer in particular, but I think it'll evolve in the West too. Uh, the the Chinese consumer used to think a Mercedes and Audi with the premium leather and uh, the 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 nice knobs and buttons, the shiny stainless knobs and buttons was luxury and premium, but that's going to change, and so the advantages of the legacy automaker are also really getting pulled away so that it's a new game 
that they don't have a ton of experience that's, in competing in. So. Yeah, that's actually a great point. Uh, that it kind of reminds me of something anecdotally about people always ask me because I have a Model Y and they say, why do you like it so much? Or like, what, what is it about it that you're like, yeah, if you're going to buy a car, why would you get that again? And it goes back exactly to, in my opinion, the changing of like what definition of premium or luxury is. For example, we have two dogs. We can have the dogs in the car. If it's hot, we can turn on dog mode. And it seems like a simple thing that really any car company should be able to do. But like, that's a feature that if uh, the next car I buy doesn't have it, probably takes it off the list. Um, having the Tesla, and, and, the, app, and, the app just works. And I've used other well, car apps where they don't work. But uh, what, what this, else were you going to add to that? No, this it's is that digital thing, first experience. Yeah, because and it's 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 a flash of a software that creates a new feature that exactly. the legacies cannot do. Right. at all right. so um for for your listeners who are trying to understand what we're talking about do a google search on cariad and volkswagen and the struggles that they've had on software and then this week alone there was an article about toyota and their software division woven planet and the struggles that they've had now remember the Googles of the world, the Amazons of the world are trying to enter the mobility space. Uber's already there. Okay. And so Chase, you've only built things with your hands. Now you have to build an interface. Right. Right. And not only that, but you need to be able to do that well enough to compete against an Apple or a Google or an Amazon. And you need to do that in the next five years. That's, I, I think, that's yeah, the challenge I, that they're looking at. I, I think that's pretty spot on because you look at, um, I, I, speaking of kind of what's been in the news, at least on the automotive side, uh, the new Volvo EX30, which is a small little, uh, Volvo obviously being the Swedish brand, but is now Chinese owned. And what are they doing? There's a lot of people that are liking the interior and the sportiness of it, but they essentially teamed up with Google to do the Google Auto pretty much crank to 11 all throughout that car. Um, and so it gives you a really strong, uh, I, I think that's a really good example of kind of a partnership of the traditional uh, Swedish Volvo brand known for safety, known for uh, their interiors and kind of their take on it meets the big tech pushing into mobility and having the advantages of that digital first uh, experience. And I, I think with how much interest that car is getting, even Volvo surprised how much interest a small electric car is getting in the U S I think that is also a great sign of that should become a wake up call for a lot of these kind of traditional auto OEMs that, yeah, there is a market for small cars actually. And so uh, a big part of it is, is obviously the, the price point. I'm sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, no, no, no. Go for it. The so the backstory on the EX30 is that it's going to be built in China and right. imported to the United States. There's currently a 25 plus a two and a half percent tariff on Chinese imported vehicles into the United States. Currently, Polestar and GM eat that because GM imports the Buick Envision right. from China, and the, currently the Polestar Two is. Um, imported from china now if the which EX... if anyone listening isn't familiar that is a division of volvo more or less right it used to be their performance division like Correct, yeah. uh, bmw's m mercs uh, amg and so in order for them to be cost competitive or price competitive they'll likely need to eat most of that tariff um, but long-term, they'll look to build the EX30 locally. And if you look at the China market, the European market, and the US market, um, the three largest markets in the world, last year, China sold about 22 million, EU about 11, and the United States about 14. We've gotten as high as around 18 million units, but uh, we haven't been there in quite some time. But um, so long-term success in these three markets, uh, one region and two, two country markets, means that you build locally. And because of the NAFTA or whatever it's called now, 
it's not called NAFTA anymore. Right. You can actually build in Mexico and still uh, have a free trade agreement with the United States and Canada. And so each at the state level, there's this uh, conundrum and schizophrenia because they want jobs, um, but they're not sure whether they want jobs from Chinese companies. And so let me assure you, Chase, that if the governor of Alabama was to meet with Wang Chuanfu, who is the CEO founder of BYD, who is the largest EV maker in the world. Now, not Tesla, BYD right. is the largest EV maker in the world. Um, if Wang Chuanfu came up to the governor of Alabama or Mississippi and said, I'm gonna write you a $3 billion check we're going to build the largest factory you've ever seen in the United States. You don't think he would, and, and we're going to employ about 5,000 people. You don't think he'd be like, yeah, let's do that. So well, it, it's, it's funny it's you say that. So, right. Oh, totally. Totally. What was, um, you might remember this. What was the battery manufacturer recently that tried to do something kind of like that? I want to say in Kentucky, and then the governor essentially had kind of a backlash and pushed back because it was a Chinese company. And then I think Michigan ended up getting the factory or, uh, and it, I don't think they've broken ground yet, but this was, I thought a few months ago, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, battery so, factory. So CATL, which is the largest uh, battery manufacturer in the world, it's a, it's a Chinese company. They had, negotiated or they were negotiating with virginia the, the governor okay. of virginia i didn't realize Mich it was catl i thought it was a different company yeah that i mean that is a huge company and a huge amount of jobs potential there right and so actually actually you're right you're right it was goshen goshen oh gotcha it was virginia goshen and michigan goshen ended up going to michigan there's a backstory about that too but you know that's probably for another Okay. <laughs> um, but these these are jobs, right? For and sure. If you think about the Midwest specifically, you know, not so much West Coast, but in the Midwest, governors hang their hats on manufacturing jobs. And so we're there, there's also a backstory of Governor Yunkin and Virginia too. I think he thought he had leverage. This is what I heard. Oh, interesting. And he wanted, so they were committing three billion. He wanted five billion, and so he tried to play hardball, and they they pulled the offer and and went to Michigan instead, and are writing a three billion dollar check to Michigan. Yeah. But so he, I think, saw an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone, right? He bashed China and you know played to his base, but he wanted that factory in Virginia, and he would have been uh and, and if he would have not been so greedy he probably would have gotten it so uh you know i think the other important thing that um is interesting to note is that um you westerners know about tesla but they don't know a ton about byd and your point about earlier iterations of products were were, were trash and 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 for Chinese companies, I'll give you a case in point. The first taxi that I got in when I landed in Beijing for my first day there was a BYD. And um, uh, it was like those old Daewoo cars where yeah, the yeah. doors were paper thin and the wheels were super small, noise, the fit and finish, the, the fabric was terrible. And I was lucky enough to be back um, in, in China in April to, for the auto show and uh, did some site visits uh, with one of them being Shenzhen in Beijing. And they let me try out about six cars, six or seven cars. And um, software is, is good, but design is a little bit, not, not my style, but it's for Chinese consumer, obviously. But man the the acceleration of these vehicles the fit and finish um the pricing the, it's B, byd is who tesla wants to be um right. 
because number one, they're going to get to probably close to 4 million cars this year sold, uh, wow. which is going to make them extremely formidable about 60, 40 split. So 60 BEVs and 40% PHEVs. They stopped building ICE vehicles uh, early last year. So, right. Uh, which I don't know if a lot of people fully realize that, but yeah. And I, I, I think BYD is like, well, they're not as big because they do PHEVs, but that's just not true. <laughs> and so I, I think it, it is wild to see. And I always had a feeling they would uh, beat Tesla. I'm curious to see this upcoming quarter to see if BYD is still in the lead. They probably will be. But uh, I know last quarter, uh, Tesla had two of their factories down for all the changes they're making. So I, I think if they aren't in if tesla takes it away from them next quarter two i do think you're right within a year or so then byd will probably be fully in the lead which is a huge accomplishment and i think something that doesn't get enough um awareness outside of kind of people in the automotive space that are in the know um i i do want to switch topics a little bit just because i know you are kind of tight on time here and we're kind of getting near the end. But one of the other areas I'm kind of curious about hearing uh, when we're talking about digital first and these exposure to the Chinese auto OEMs is around autonomy. I know the Chinese uh, automakers have been really focused on that. And it's been really interesting here in really the last year, and especially I feel like the last few months in the US, the big autonomy bubble that there was and like the promises of it really have kind of gone away completely. And those who were leaders are just facing so many issues in the space. Um, I'm kind of thinking of like Cruise and Waymo, especially that have had either to pull back or even stop altogether. Um, but there's been a lot of push for autonomy and success. And some of the companies like Baidu are already running uh, autonomous vehicles in China. I would love to kind of get your take on that. So during my trip in April, I rode in four robo taxis level four uh, two of them uh, had safety drivers uh, and two of them didn't and so um that's moving full steam ahead the uh importance or what's important for for uh well let me let me let me do this let me take a step back um when you say autonomous i think it takes the, and with regards to passenger vehicles, I think there's two forks. There's uh, there's the robo taxi, and then there's ADAS or advanced driving assist systems. And you probably know about the five levels of autonomy. And uh, robo taxi is level four, level five, where Cruise and Waymo are at. And unfortunately, specifically for Cruise, they've had a lot of challenges. They've taken um, most of their vehicles off the road in San Francisco because of a, a huge accident um, that one of their vehicles uh, ran over a pedestrian and dragged them about 20 feet. And then a Waymo is, is dialed down a little bit and they're not as uh, chest thumping as, as Cruise has been. Uh, and so we have to really look at robo-taxis as the final frontier which is still 15 years out because the, the data machine needs to be fed. And uh, where we don't look, how we should look at it from a robotaxi standpoint, there's millions of use cases and situations that need data in order to make informed decisions for the machine learning algorithm to make an informed decision. And so, when it's sunny all the time in California, that they're creating a lot of data for certain use cases or certain situations. But if we're to get from uh, from where we are now to Chase, you have an app. It's raining. It's snowing. It's dark. You can still call a robo taxi, and it can take you anywhere you want to go. That's still probably 12, 15 years out. Uh, but uh, but that doesn't mean that a cruise and a Waymo, what they're doing with having their robotaxis out in San Francisco is creating awareness, building awareness, True. educating consumer. And so that's really important. And when they can, they will try to commercialize it to show Wall Street that, hey, you know what? There yeah. is a business case for this, right? In China, as with everything else, 
uh, mobility related, it is just hyper competitive. And there are strongholds, uh, like Baidu is very strong in Beijing. Uh, we Ride is very strong in Guangzhou. We Ride is a company that you should learn more about because they're likely going to be IPOing in the US early next year. And so um, there's another company called Pony and uh, uh, Deep Route is another company. They all have offices in Silicon Valley. So those are the four companies and RoboTaxis that I got to try out. Um, Baidu, non-safety driver, amazing experience. Uh, if you've never ridden in a RoboTaxi, you should, you should do that. It's kind of surreal at the very beginning. And then you just kind of forget yeah. because it just kind of works. Uh, but but I do want to highlight that there are other use cases and situations. So we'll start seeing autonomous lawnmowers on the sides of highways probably in the next two or three years. We're start starting to already see like autonomous robots in hotels that are replacing the concierge. If you go ask for a, a toothbrush, right, they might bring up a ro robot that says go to room number 217. And um, you'll start seeing in airports autonomous uh, uh, cleaning uh, cleaning vehicles, and in agritech, uh, you'll start seeing a lot of autonomous agritech vehicles that yeah. are uh, that are picking that's up. That's a corn, space that's uh, had a lot of autonomy corn. that I don't think people fully realize, and uh, what's coming down the pipeline is pretty impressive. Yeah, so I don't want. You, I mean, there's a lot of progress. Yeah. And so I wanted to highlight that because yes, you see the highlights or the headlines of cruise and stuff like that. But in the next five years, there's going to be a lot of other uh, situations, use cases, business, business cases that will use autonomous vehicles, whether they're four-wheeled, two-wheeled, delivery right. vehicles, uh, harvesting agritech vehicles, drones. Uh, are going to be so so I'm very hopeful for that sector uh, for 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 the autonomous vehicle stuff and you know we kind of known for electric vehicles and batteries and stuff like that but the consultancy we help mobility companies and so uh, it's it's our job and our business to to know what's going on in all these different sectors um, the one thing that I, I I'd also like to highlight is that GM and Ford, they all talk about uh, selling services in years in the in the coming years, and transforming their buy sell business to a services based business. So the main difference is that instead of every five years, you I sell you a car every month. I get you get a recurring twenty dollar fee or some sort of recurring expense that because you're I'm providing you with services, right? Think Apple TV, think of the apps that you're watching TV and things like that. Um, and so, but you need data. And, right. and, and where Tesla is also at a huge advantage is that they sell their ADAS service or their, their taxi or autonomous vehicle service um, with a one-time fee, $14,000 for FSD, I think. And, this is this is kind of the crazy part. I think Tesla would be, and I said this like five years ago, I, I could see Tesla selling their cars at close to cost in order to mm. get more vehicles on the road. Yeah. And because their, their long-term strategy for profitability is not through buy-sell cars, it's through providing services, specifically autonomous services. And in order to do that, you need more data. In order to get more data, you need more product or vehicles that are vacuum cleaners that are hoovering up more data. Right, right. Uh, a typical connected vehicle takes about a terabyte of, or, or uh, generates about a terabyte of data every day. So, Which is wild. Yeah. Well, so, I, yeah. I think that was one of the things that I was skeptical in um, with everything going on with the cruise. And I'd be kind of curious to know how they approach it with some of these Chinese companies, because I'm not as familiar um, for Waymo, I know with a lot of their, the decisions are made on car or in car. Uh, and with Tesla, is it probably perfect? No, but it's the decisions are made in car. And with Cruise, it's essentially, they're very well, uh, 
they they're RC cars with a lot of different sensors on them that have to be the information then sent off site. The decisions are made by a computer and then sent back to the actual car. And that's part of the reason some of the issues Cruise was running into is they'd lose connection and then the cars would just stop driving. Um, and that is one of the things that I think, especially going back to the data talk about it is like the value to me, I, I think there is value in getting a software that can drive a car, but being able to build a software that can be on the car and then that data can be understood and processed on in the car versus having to be sent out every time is also a huge opportunity for being able to make these cars fully autonomous like we're talking about like when there's bad weather and there isn't a self-connection like that is a big step up that i don't think a lot of people fully realize that there's value in is making sure that the car can make these decisions by itself versus having to always ping back and forth to kind of get approval and verification that it's doing the right thing and i think talking about services especially if you're able to kind of have this data and stay in car then you can start making a lot more decisions of what is actually relevant to that user and then good or bad advertise and target that user what to upsell and kind of sell to them directly versus kind of the more broad approach and i think that is one of the kind of conundrums that we've been talking about it's like you have these large domestic auto oems and they're talking about the value of their autonomy programs and they're pitching it to uh, wall street and all these other to kind of raise the stock price but then you look at their actual products and cars and none of them are actually software defined software first and it, it just isn't kind of a truly cohesive execution versus what the messaging is and I think that to me is what makes listening to your podcast so interesting because clearly the Chinese manufacturers are doing that. Tesla is doing that. Um, but a lot of these other domestic auto OEMs are really struggling with the full package that is a software for a software defined vehicle. Um, I realize we're kind of coming up on the end of your time. Um, I, I don't know. Well, I, can go any... for, I can go for a few more minutes. Um, oh, okay. But, great. Um, um, the, yeah, the I don't know if I... there's... Yeah, if there's anything else you want to add to that. So you brought up a good point, right? The process, right? Um, because it, it's it's not just software. I think um, an electric smart connected vehicle is the, the, the toughest hardware software integration project any engineer has ever gone through. And I'm going to try to convince you to stop using software defined vehicle as a as as a useful term. I think it's a terrible term because yeah. I, I believe it's user defined. Um, yeah. Software enables the technology, but it doesn't define it. Hmm. Um, I have had the 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 pleasure of working at, I would argue, two companies that are the best at hardware software integration. Um, in Silicon Valley, I worked at Apple and I worked at uh, Logitech. They make the keyboards and mice. And so um, so I'm very, very cognizant of user experience design and, and understanding hardware and software integration. So it's not just software, okay? Um, that's going to really, really create a compelling experience in an electric vehicle. It's how that software plays with the screen, with the infotainment center. Because if there's a latency um, that's either caused by a slow processor or the screen, yeah. then that's a poor experience, right? And it takes both of them working in concert to really, because we've been trained by our iPhones and our Android phones that, that, that touching something should have an instantaneous response. Okay, and so this is where it's an increasingly difficult challenge for the OEMs because, again, they're terrible at software and they need to get really good at it in a yeah. very, very short period of time. You brought up a great point. Volvo is using Google for its back end. Okay, Android Auto. That's inviting the fox into the hen house. Right. And so what are the metas, the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples really good at? Creating a sticky environment that, that yeah. doesn't allow you to leave very easily. Okay. And yeah. so 
there was a big stink about GM getting rid of, of CarPlay, okay? That was a shrewd decision by Mary Barra. I would argue a necessary decision because she saw that there was going to be heartburn from them kicking CarPlay out. But if they let CarPlay stay in a GM vehicle for another five years, it would probably be impossible. You had said um, the, the, the dog, uh, what was it called? The dog uh, feature on your Tesla? The, oh, the, the dog mode feature. Yeah, yeah Dog or, mode, dog mode, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, you said that's potentially a deal breaker, right? Think of that. Right. No, and, and I, so, I think that's um I think that's a great one to bring up is kind of the CarPlay functionality because I, I think you're right. Um it is shrewd and it is the smart decision to get rid of it. However, I personally am still not convinced they're I would love to be proven wrong that their software is just as good or better as the CarPlay. And it won't right. be for some time. Right. And but, I think that's why so many people were annoyed with that CarPlay, which I get. But I, I also get like from a business standpoint, you're completely right. You do have kind of the fox in the hen house sort of situation. And you want to get that uh, out of there and you want to, the true value that you're providing. And I, I also love the fact what you just said earlier about the user-defined vehicle versus software, because that's perfect. And that is exactly true, that it is about those special things to the user and, and the software could matter less. Um, we, we should know that I'm guilty of using that hardware way too much. I think that's a spot on uh, insight though. It should be user it's a It's a consultant term that they don't even yeah. know what it means, right? It's <laughs> just trying to, so, so uh, you know, to kind of wrap this up, what, what, I appreciate you listening and following me. I think I bring a completely different perspective because just like media, there are analysts that were great at kind of researching and understanding the traditional auto sector. Yep. They're trying to hold on to relevance right now because they don't understand it either. They've never worked or lived in silicon valley they a lot of these guys have never driven an electric vehicle right right like so, but but they're man. they're supposed to talk about tesla and and if you think about it some of the these famous analysts that cover tesla if they don't know what tesla is doing in china they don't know what tesla is doing 40 percent of their production comes from china right and so so this is my case for listening to, to guys like me who you can check the receipts, right? And I think that's really, really important because um, to me, I look at there's going to be four phases of mobility, the electrification, smartification, and, and I'm taking the smartification from Brian Gu, who is the chairman of um, the sharification and the autonomification. Okay. And if we look at regions and countries, US and Europe are still in the electrification phase. China is in the smartification phase. And when I mean sharification phase, think of Google, think of Lyft, and China, think of DD. These legacy automakers are going to create mobility platforms like an Uber. And their two signature uh, services in this mobility app, because if you look at Uber, they have Uber Eats, they have Uber Grocery, they have you know micro mobility Uber, and so we're talking about stickiness, right? We're just talking about staying on the same platform, and so the the final frontier is going to be the two services, eVTOL and Robo Taxis, on this mobility platform. Okay. And let's take this a step further. They're going to partner with airlines so that, Chase, you're supposed to be going to San Francisco in three days. The mobility app will plan out your entire itinerary right. by looking at your calendar, looking at the meetings that you have, booking the flight, booking the Uber, booking the micromobility or the public transportation that gets you to your final destination once you arrive. 
And then knowing that you have a meeting at 8 a.m. the next morning, setting your alarm, calling that Uber based on the traffic patterns at 7.30 in the morning, making sure you get there. And so that's the final frontier for mobility, okay? Uh, and it's going to be an exciting time because I'm hoping that there are enough companies that can kind of disrupt even in Uber, right? Because Uber right. is an old, an old player now. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're now if you the look at, companies. Yeah, if you if you look at the top ten companies, maybe it's UPS for delivery, maybe it's uh, Uber for for uh, uh, robo or, or ride hailing. But ten years from now, will we see different brands? I sure do think so. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the most exciting thing for for me as a consultant and, and just a a nerd that loves what's going on in the space. So. Yeah, I, I just want to thank you so much too for being on here and discussing all these topics because I, I think I could, we could have a few different podcasts talking about all these, just given your insights and how passionate you're about these topics and uh, the fact that you can, I, I think what you said earlier is so spot on about so many people in the space right now are talking or covering from an, indus uh, an industry they really don't know anymore or have that kind of perspective to know better about versus kind of like, oh, we've always covered automotive. So that's how we are going to approach all these insights. And uh, it really, and I think I, through my own personal career experience, have been fortunate to be in both automotive and in kind of the uh, startup Silicon Valley side of stuff to see that exposure, that that really is the way moving forward and how you can have to bridge both of those mindsets. So I, I just want to say thank you for today. Thank you for being on and uh, can't wait to talk to you again soon. Uh, thanks for having me, Chase. And the last thing I will leave with your audience is make sure to keep an eye on how fast these companies are moving and how good they get at software development. Because without either of them, they're, they're not going to be very successful in the future. Just think of how fast Tesla moves and then think about Tesla being playing defense in China. Right. So the Chinese companies are bullying Tesla in China. So um, if, if you don't see Ford GM move much, much faster and get really, really good in, very, in a very short period of time at software development and hardware software integration, um, they're going to look a lot differently, unfortunately, uh, than the, in the next 10 years. So anyways, hey, Chase, great chatting with you. And again, man, so I, I, I thought I had this time, but I just talked, man. So I apologize for, for bogarting the conversation. So no, that's, that's what we wanted this. And that's why I wanted you on here was uh, when you do talk, it's just incredibly fascinating. And I think a perspective that more people need to hear. So thank you so much too. And we'll, we'll talk soon. Yep. Have a good afternoon, Chase. We'll see you, man.